0: The following audio is brought to you by Emmanuel Baptist Church in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. More information about our church can be found at emmanueltuscaloosa.org. All right, so uh, your, the packet you have in front of you tonight is a relatively thick one, uh, mostly because of the various Bible verses. We won't read all of them. You know, the the verses that are in the packet are normally three times the amount that would normally be there because I typically put the corresponding passage to each gospel in there. So it's like three times as many as it would normally be. So it, it can be a little bit thicker as we're going through the gospels. And we're really just at the very beginning of, of the gospels. And I, I want to take a, a second just to remind us of the last thing that we covered uh, before we took our little uh, break for the Christmas holiday. Um, I want you to remember that... Um, when we talk about John the Baptist, some of the, there's circumstantial evidence, which is, you know, obviously not the best form of evidence uh, that there is, but circumstantial evidence does suggest a little bit at least that he might have been a part of a community that we've talked about a number of times in here called the Essene community. And the Essenes were a, a group of people who were, very conservative, uh, cared very much about Scripture, but also had a lot of uh, rituals that seem to bleed over into a lot of, of Christianity. And a lot of um, sort of it's sort of the underpinnings, the beginnings of what we see happening in the church as it's, as it's formed. Um, the region that he's ministering in, his diet, his message of repentance, his insistence on baptism, um, then you couple that with probably there is since his parents are much older when he's when he's born. There's, you know, there, there may even be an early death of his parents and the nature of adoption that the Essenes engaged in of of small children and things like that because they didn't normally have their own or get married, um, bringing them into their way of life and training them up. It seems that there's some evidence to suggest that. If he wasn't part of the Essene community, there is at least a category for the things that he's saying in Jewish life. That people could hear the things that he's saying and go, we've been trained on this, we've understood, we know who this, you know, this sort of represents. And, and, and all of that to say is not necessarily to just explain everything that's happening in the, in the Bible in sort of a naturalistic way at all, but really to say, look how God prepares his people for what he's taking them through. And so, so, as we look at the various communities that are coming to the foreground in the Bible and in the New Testament in particular, all of those have been, all of those foundation pieces have been laid by God Himself as He's preparing uh, the, the way for the Messiah to come into the, the world. And not, ha- not only has He prepared the way for the Messiah, but He has prepared the way for His forerunner too. Um, to be born in a particular situation, in particular circumstances that make him a particular person, that train him in particular ways, and that equip him for the message that he's going to be preaching. Um, So some of it, clearly John is a prophet, so some some of it is clearly God speaking to him, say this, right, do this. But then there's other things that are a part of John's makeup and character and things like that that he's also just trained him in from the time he was born, before he even knew, uh, you know, a word. So all of those things I think are are fascinating and and kind of paint a bigger picture of John the Baptist. So the baptism, we get to the baptism of Jesus, um, uh, sorry, the baptism that John is bringing into Israel, and it's not just uh, a brand new thing altogether. There is a category for understanding where this baptism comes from, and the Essene community has been the one kind of preaching that, that, uh, that there is, we should do ritual cleansing, that we are impure before the Lord, and, and in order to join the Essene community, there would be a process by which one would cleanse themselves. But, that being said, largely, water purification... To enter into Judaism was something that was reserved for Gentiles that were converting to Judaism. So when you would bring a Gentile into the fold, there would be a water purification process that they would go through. And so the categories that are in the mind of a first century Jew when it comes to going into the waters of baptism and repenting of sins is something that a Gentile would do. And so it, it brings this kind of message that when John is sitting there saying, repent and be baptized, that there is a... Uh, you, you're saying we're like Gentiles to you. And that's, that's also matching with what John is saying about himself, that he's a voice of one crying out into the wilderness as, as if the people that are in front of him listening to his preaching are still in captivity in bondage to sin and in exile, in spiritual exile. Hey, get out of the way. The Messiah is coming and he's going to lead you back into the promised land. So having come from Gentile territory and you yourself being like Gentiles spiritually, let's baptize you in the Jordan before you come back into the the promised land. Um, That also matches with something that we see uh, broadcast about the New Testament I'm uh, oh, sorry, about the, the New Covenant when Ezekiel is is preparing for that in uh, in the book of Ezekiel, where he prophesies that the, the people will be cleansed when the New Covenant comes, cleansed by the washing of water. And so these two things are kind of coming together where God is telling Israel that they got to, you, you're taking the place of someone on the outside before you come in to this, to this community that we're building as we prepare for the end times, um, when Jesus got into the waters of baptism, uh, John initially tried to deter him from being baptized and sort of pushed back on him, which we're going to deal a little bit with tonight. But John initially pushes back on him and he's like, "I, I should be baptized by you. I don't need to, you know, you to baptize me." And remember, the baptism that John is doing is requiring repentance. He tells the Pharisees this, you know, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Repent of your sin and get in the waters. And so there's a co- combination of repentance of sin along with the baptism that's that's coming together. So when Jesus gets in the water, John is going, this guy has nothing to repent of. So you know what are we doing here? What's what? You know what's what's that about? And Jesus, the answer that Jesus gives him is it's necessary to fulfill all righteousness. And we spent a, a little bit of time on that last week, and I obviously preached on it in Matthew. But essentially, uh, God's new covenant that He's establishing, His covenant people that He's establishing, they're going to be of a certain type, and that type is that they are going to be ones who have God's own Spirit within them, and having God's Spirit within them, they want to do God's will. Whatever God wants is what I want to do. So Jesus coming forward is not in the spirit of repentance, because he has nothing to repent of. Jesus coming forward is in, the sp- in that same spirit of God's new covenant people, of wanting to do God's will. I want to do what you are requiring of your people, and so he 's coming into the water with that kind of attitude of saying, "Hey, look, God is requiring this of his people, and if God wills it, I want to do it because that's what it means to be his new covenant people. And so both of them are going to fulfill god 's will by John baptizing Jesus because that 's the way God wants it, and that's if it's good enough for God, it's good enough for me it's kind of the way you know you think of it um, so here, the, I think one of the hardest things about you know, the New Testament is seeing this transition between the Old Testament coming to a close and the New Testament and the church coming to the foreground. And that overlap between Judaism and, and Christianity is you know, sometimes kind of a difficult one to figure out, one theologically to really think about, and two, to you know, as you watch it happen, you've got people who are Jews and who know the Lord through a religion called Judaism, really coming to, if you want to think about it, a new religion, right? Um, probably better described as a fulfillment of an old religion, but, but really they're shifting gears to saying the Messiah has now come, and what, what do we do with that? So watching that transition over the next few years, going through the New Testament is not always an easy one to understand and to wrap our minds around, and so that's, uh, that's part of what we're going to be looking at tonight. When I use the word synoptic in reference to the Gospels, has anybody ever heard that term before, synoptic Gospels? I know a few of you are. people. Some of you that are used to teaching regularly have probably seen it a number of times. The synoptic Gospels are Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And they're called synoptic gospels because they, when it comes to the summary of Jesus' life, they tend to be focusing on the same parts. Okay? So they normally have the same stories in them, more or less. There's few differences between them in terms of the stories they tell and things like that. Um, but they're generally focusing on the same aspects of Jesus' life. Um, John's gospel is radically different. <laughs> it focuses on a lot of different stories. It, you're going to find a ton of things in John's gospel that you don't find in the other gospels. Um, and so in the synoptic gospels, that is Matthew, Mark, and Luke, um, following Jesus's baptism, the Holy Spirit uh, manifested in a physical presence like a dove and rested on him, and then the voice of God the Father speaks audibly from heaven, saying, "This is my beloved Son, or you are my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased." So I want to just I want to look at the these scenes in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Uh, shouldn't take too long to read through them. Uh, Ma- First, Matthew three thirteen to seventeen. and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Now look at Mark 1, 9-11. In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. Or with you I am well pleased. Luke uh, 3, 21-22. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased pleased um, okay so you kind of you, you read those in parallel and you can probably see maybe some very subtle differences between the two not anything necessarily that's that big of a big of a distinction but some subtle differences one with uh, the voice says this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased the others say you uh, with you I am well pleased." Um, you know, some focus on when it came, when it happened out of the water, and things like that. But they're, they're relatively minor differences and probably pretty easy, easily explained. In the Gospel of John, the baptizer sees the Spirit remaining on Jesus as a mark of identification that Jesus, although otherwise unknown to John, is the Son of God. This goes back to the question that Timothy asked, um, uh, it was a few weeks ago, back when we last met. Is, here, is, here is the way John describes it in his Gospel. It says, The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, and I have, see, I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. So here is John uh, calling out Jesus as the Son of God, identifying Him as the Son of God, now seeming to know who He is, whereas before the Spirit descended on Him like a dove, like we saw at His baptism, before that happens, He has no idea who He is. But of course in the gospel of Matthew when he comes into the water toward John, John says, "Do I need to be ba- do I baptize you? You need to be baptized in me." That would seem to indicate before his baptism in Matthew that he does know who he is and is confused about why he'd be coming to his baptism. You see that? Does that make sense? How do you fix that? How do you solve that? What's the answer to that? Somebody help me out. <laughs> <laughs> what well, what is it? Yeah, but in in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, he's baptized, comes up out of the water after baptism, spirit descends on him like a dove. Right? So the spirit descends after baptism. Are y'all tracking so far? The spirit descends on Jesus like a dove after baptism, right? Here, John says, "I did not know who he was. In Matthew, I did not know who he was before the dove descended after his baptism. Matthew, he comes into the waters of baptism. And John says, hold up. You, I need to be baptized by you. Do you baptize? You see the, see the chronological thing that's going on here? Okay. What, what's the answer to that? What do you think? Of course. So there may be something that John perceives about this man coming into the waters. or Or... Perhaps Jesus doesn't come into the waters confessing any sin. And he goes, you don't have any sin? Then you need to be baptizing me. You know, uh, maybe, maybe. uh, Isn't it also possible that John could have seen a dove descend on Jesus privately? Is that also possible? John sees a dove descending on Jesus and a message from God to his prophet saying, this one is mine. And he says, oh. And the dove descending on Jesus after his baptism is available to the people who are there watching or perhaps to Jesus himself, however you want to read that. Possible? Yeah. There you go. Yeah. 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 Here's, here's the reason that I, I, I every once in a while I want to go through something like that, like a little exercise like that, is because so often you will see people take these passages and they will go, see contradictions between you know all these. But I think there's nothing about the words of those gospels that inherently contradict. Right? It just takes even just a little bit of thought, to see how they could actually come together and coincide, and the stories coincide. We're going to see a lot of that in the Gospels, and that's one of the things in reading the Gospels that is important, that you don't just kind of look at maybe apparent distinctions or apparent discrepancies or apparent contradictions even, and just kind of go, well, then one of them was wrong. You're like, well, there's probably a thousand different solutions before we ever get there, right? Uh, That they are, and and I think it's important that we as Christians remember what we're affirming about the Bible, that it is the inerrant, inspired, authoritative Word of God, um, that it's infallible in all that it affirms, and we do hold that as Christians, and in our reading of Scripture, we can take just a little bit of time and resolve some of these things that seem to be apparent conflicts. That right now, even in the world as we speak, are making hay about constantly. That uh, just a little bit of time reading and thinking about how these things can coincide coincide help. Go ahead. Yeah, so that would be saying when he when John says, I did not know him, that he means no in a different way than what we're initially interpreting. That's that's also possible. Point is there's probably a thousand of these that we could spend all day on going through that, that, where's, where's that? Yeah, yeah. So so John baptizes Jesus and uh, my own personal feeling of it, of it is probably that John, as God's prophet, is given some type of vision that he's referring to here before everybody else gets that vision, or before at least Jesus gets that vision, that the Spirit descends on Jesus you know, visibly and the audible voice. Notice that John doesn't even mention the audible voice uh, that, he, that he heard. Um, so I think that's probably the reality. and then when Jesus was baptized, then this becomes a more of a public uh, viewing. But regardless of how you want to take that, there what what is clear is that there is being, there is a, a torch that's being handed off. a, a baton, if you will, in the relay race of God's revelation. A, the baton is is being handed off now to Jesus. and you you see this that immediately following his baptism, he is driven out into the wilderness by the Spirit uh, for 40 days of fasting in in the wilderness, which, especially in Matthew's Gospel, is sort of meant to clue you in, and I think in all the other Gospels as well, but especially in Matthew's is highlighted, uh, recalls Israel's 40 years of wilderness wandering, so you look at Matthew 4, 1-11, we won't read it all, but he says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Satan didn't come to him on day one, if you notice. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Well, What did we just see in the previous passage? Jesus was baptized, and what was declared? Spirit descended like a dove. This is my Son. Flash forward after 40 days of fasting, and what is now called into question? If you are the Son. Flash forward three and a half years, Jesus is bloody and on a cross, and what do they say to him? If you are the son, come down off that cross. In other words, people are looking for all kinds of validity, Satan himself, wanting all kinds of validity that comes outside of God's own revealed voice. God has already said it. This is my beloved son. If God has, as my friend James always says, if God has said it, why would you question it? Right? (laughs) Or as James always says, what did God say? (laughs) That's what your grandfather said, yeah. Uh, So he says, uh, if you are the Son of God, but he answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So Jesus responds with exactly what I just said. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said, if you are the son of God, what is all this if stuff? What do you mean by if it's already been told to you that he is? Uh, He says, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and on their hands, he will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. Jesus said to him again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him up to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and all their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you. Notice, no, if you are the Son of God. I don't, want you to, I don't want to remind you about that. All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and Him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, the angels came and were ministering. To him. So he's driven out to the wilderness uh, for 40 days, which is this sort of shadowing of Israel's 40 years in the wilderness. But the difference, of course, between Jesus' 40 days in the wilderness and Israel's 40 years is what? When Israel is tempted by the devil, what do they do? They give in. They put him to the test as they did at Massa, right? And respond to God in all kinds of uh, sinful ways, and Jesus does not. So he's a fitting representative of the nation of Israel in that he is sinless. So twice Satan's attacks begin with the reference, uh, with reference to the claim that Jesus is the Son of God. And all of this suggests that Matthew recognizes Jesus fulfilling the role of Israel as Son of God. True Son of God. True in his, his actual nature, who He is by His nature, He is the Son of God. But also filling the role that Israel was given by God, by grace as son of god called that numerous times through the old testament we see now that this one that john has handed the baton off to is actually the son of god the one fit to carry the sins of uh, the nation of israel sins of all god's people so the memory of john the baptist now now I'll, i don't want to I, I want us to think about who John actually is and, uh, and how important he actually what, what important role he plays in Israel's history, not only in Israel's history but in ours. Um, the memory of John the Baptist remained for many years with those who had heard him. A quarter of a century after his death, we learn of a group of people as far away as Ephesus who claimed to have been baptized under him, that of course is in Acts. 19 uh, 1 to 7. The point is that John, even for a secular writer, secular historian like Josephus, John the Baptist is, is, has some notoriety. He, is, uh, he, he not only caused a tremendous issue for the Roman government in his preaching and his prophecy, obviously, they're the ones that killed him and cut off his head, um, but he was looked at and revered in Israel as a prophet from God. Now, now, just take yourself back to this point in time. We, we spent, I think it was 13 weeks maybe, going through the history, the time of history between the old, the close of the Old Testament and the open of the New Testament. And what you'll maybe recall about that time period is it's a period of about 400-ish years or so where... Israel is known to express that God has been silent with them. You remember this? There's not In Israel's history, they're not without a word from God on the usual, right? Even back, you've got Abraham and you've got the patriarchs that come. Eventually you get Moses and you get... The prophets that come after after them, there was there were schools of prophecy rising up in first uh, in uh, first and second kings, and and then you had that there was a time of silence where Eli was there as priest, but soon Samuel began to get word from the Lord, and then David and 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 several others. So. God was routinely giving to the nation of Israel prophets, and even judges before that, who were not perfect by any means, but were at least there as ambassadors of of God or sent by God to deliver Israel. So if you think about just Israel's history, what is that time between Malachi and Matthew? It's 400 years of silence, and you get being ruled in your own land by the Ptolemies and the Seleucids, and you get wars over the city of Jerusalem and fighting back against the temple. You get pagan sacrifices in the temple. You get tons of all kinds of just unconscionable things that are happening there in Jerusalem, and all of it, they're looking around, where is the prophet that's going to rise up and actually explain God's point of view in all of this? And He's not there. In fact, the book of Malachi closes with God telling you, I'm going to be quiet for a little while. Just, just wait. And we know from history, we saw this even during that time, God's not really quiet. I mean, he's working behind the scenes, but we have the advantage of 2,000 years being able to look back at history and see that. But when you're in the middle of it, you probably don't, right? And there's no prophet around to explain it like they've always had. So this time of silence is now broken by John the Baptist. You actually have a guy who is out here doing the things that prophets do, saying things that prophets typically say, and is even claiming to be a prophet. That's big. So when you look there in the the New Testament, you see these people flocking out there and being baptized and listening to his preaching. You might be inclined to ask, why would they be doing that? The reason they're doing that is because they've been forever without one. And now here is this guy who is doing and living and saying some of the things that prophets say. And so it's giving some you know, thrust to his argument, some weight to what he's saying. And so they're following him, they're listening to him. And for years after John the Baptist is off the scene and long since dead, you've got people who know the baptism of John and remember the baptism. Hey, I was baptized when John... Like, like, going forward in a Billy Graham crusade, right? Like, people, there's people, I was baptized in a Billy Graham crusade. Like, like, I remember being baptized there in the river uh, by John the Baptist himself. So you find this even years after uh, he's dead. But the significance of John the Baptist cannot be overstated. The passing of the torch between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant begins with this transition between his and Jesus' respective ministries. So, in our Bibles, the Old Testament ends at, after Malachi. And we get this little fancy page, it's just blank, it says New Testament. And you flip the next page, and we're in the Gospel of Matthew. But in reality, the Old Testament more appropriately closes with John the Baptist than it does there at the end of Malachi. Uh, and as proof positive of that are some things that Jesus has even said in Luke 7, 22-28, uh, And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John, What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written. Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Luke 16, 16, the law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. Then the disciples, Matthew 9, 14 to 17, then the disciples of John came to him saying, why do we see the Pharisees fast? Why why do we and the Pharisees fast? So here's John's disciples. Uh, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus came, Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment for the patch tears away from the garment and and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst and the wine is spilled and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins and so both are preserved. So, what Jesus is essentially saying here is that John is that last and final representative of the old covenant coming to prepare the way for the new. It's hard to even call him a representative of the old covenant. It's it's this transition. It's this handing of a baton between the old and the new. It's this handshake that takes place between John representing the things that came before and Jesus coming in to usher in the new covenant. And uh, and so John is that marker. John is that last great prophet and the greatest uh, of the prophets. And Jesus says, but the one who is the least in, on this side of it, the one who is the least on this side of the baton handoff is even greater than John the Baptist because they're seeing this day. So John's baptism of Jesus um, is not only, the be- it not only begins Jesus' public ministry, but it marks the beginning of the end of John's. John recognizes that his time of public teaching is nearing its end once Jesus has now come on the scene. So we see this even in John three twenty-two, where he says, I won't read it all, but he says, verse 30, he says in John 3, verse 30, he says, He must increase, but I must decrease. His, his disciples are kind of worried, and they're like, well, Jesus is over there baptizing. He's attracting more people than we are. His church is bigger than ours. And, uh, not really. But uh, John, John is like, this is supposed to take place. This transition is supposed to happen. And so that Jesus coming on to public ministry marks the beginning of the end. At Jesus' arrival... At least some of John's disciples begin to follow Jesus. They avenge, some of them eventually become apostles of His. So if you look at John chapter 1, the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 35 to 42, you see two of these disciples that were with John now going to, to Jesus. It says the next day John, again, John was standing with, Two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour one of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. So, How is it that Jesus comes upon at least some of his disciples? It's pretty clear from the rest of the New Testament that Jesus grew up around some of these, knew some of them. They had common interactions. I think probably John, at least uh, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, are probably Jesus' cousins. We get that from when Jesus rises from the dead and the women go out to see the, the empty tomb. And in one gospel, it lists Mary, Mary, and Salome, and another it says Mary, Mary, and Mary's sister, and another it says Mary, uh, Mary, and Mary's sister, the the mother of John and James, the sons of Zebedee. And so you piece those together, and you realize Salome, who is Mary's sister, it seems like, is also the mother of James and John, which makes then James and John Jesus' cousin, right? So in makes a whole lot more sense when Jesus is on the cross and he looks at his cousin, who is the nephew of Mary, and says, Behold your son, right? makes a little bit more sense of why you would do that for John and for Mary. They know each other. They've grown up together. It also makes a little bit more sense why Jesus is standing there and his aunt Salome comes up to him and says, Hey, can my sons, your cousins, sit on your right hand? I changed your diaper, you know. <laughs> my son should be able to sit on your right hand and your left hand. And, uh, and he's like, Aunt Salome, you know, Probably. So there's some of that as far as Jesus' disciples go, but some of it is uh, coming from John's disciples. Standing there listening to the preaching of John and then seeing the one that is the Lamb of God attested by John, and they go and follow him, and at least Andrew is that way. And Andrew brings in his brother Peter into the fold as well. Um, So some of them have interactions with Jesus. They know a little bit about Jesus. They're being, uh, they're, they're being introduced to Jesus by John and by, and by others. And so when Jesus comes to them at one point in the Gospels and says, come follow me, it's not the first time they've ever seen this guy, right? They kind of know who he is, and they've been introduced to him a time or two, at least Peter and several others have, it seems. Um, so, as a sign of the transition between the old and the new, Jesus' ministry even promises greater works than anything his disciples have seen in the past. So, we have several different, uh, basically, several different evidences of what these are. That the, the time of the Old Testament is coming to a close and a new kingdom is beginning in Jesus, and that is the beginning of the end of John's ministry. John, John, some of John's disciples coming to, coming to Jesus to follow him. And then, obviously, this, he's, they're told that there's greater works that are prepared. So Jesus meets Philip, and then Philip found Nathanael in verse 45. And Nathanael said to him, he, he says, We found the Messiah, uh, we found him of whom Moses and the law also and the prophets wrote Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph, Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Um, Philip said to him, Well, come and see. And Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Now, what was that? What was it, Nathaniel, what was it that happened under the fig tree? What happened that, that Jesus saw? Who knows? But whatever it was, whatever that means, and I literally I've read this my entire life and gone, I, I, I don't know. I, I, I don't know what that is that he said to him and what he, what significance that held to Nathaniel, but Whatever it meant to Nathaniel, it was enough for him to go, well, this is it. Right? So he, said, he says this, hold on, James. He says, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. And, Je- and Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. You know where that comes from. Where is that? Jacob's ladder. Yeah. Yeah, it's Jacob's ladder. He- heaven opens up. Angels ascend and descend. What, is, what, is Jake- what does Jacob do when he sees that? When he wakes up from that vision or dream or whatever, what, what does he do? Do you remember? Say again. He says, God is in this place, and then he, he builds something. Builds a memorial for it. Bethel, house of God. Right? So when Jesus says, you're going to see Bethel. You're going to see the house of God standing in front of you. What is he talking about? He's talking about himself. Remember, go back to John 1, just a few verses before this. At the beginning of this chapter, John says, he tabernacled among us, and we beheld his glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So Jesus is telling Nathaniel, you ain't seen nothing yet. You're going to see heaven, the heavens open, angels ascending and descending. Jacob hasn't even seen this. So the various accounts of Jesus calling his disciples, you know, different, here's another one, differ somewhat from gospel to Gospel. Uh, you know, you get him in a boat preaching and then calling uh, Peter, him sending Peter out to cast the net on the other side, uh, him going by, walking by the seashore saying, come follow me, and they go, very brief uh, account, description, or whatever. But really all that is, it seems like in John, this is some of the disciples' first interaction with Jesus. Andrew, for instance, is his first interaction with Jesus. Who is this guy? Runs off to tell his brother, here's who he is. Peter meet, meets Jesus and says, oh my goodness, and Nathaniel and Philip and several others that are now following him, even if they're following him from a distance, the ministry hasn't even really begun yet. And they haven't even really been officially invited, except for maybe Philip, who's told, come and follow me. Others, the others have not really even been formally invited yet. And they, but they will be as he walks by the seashore and says, come and follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. Well, there's various interactions, but this in John seems to be the first interaction that a lot of his followers uh, have with him that will ev- and they will eventually become his disciples and then apostles. Um, so all of this is a big transition. There's a lot of things that are happening right now as John's ministry begins to decrease and Jesus' begins to increase. But what happens in chapter 2 I think is one of the most profound miracles that's really described to us, short of the resurrection, of course, and maybe several others. But it is at least really profound there in John chapter two, and we normally kind of brush over it as if it's just the first miracle that takes place in the Gospels, and it certainly is that. But it's not just oh it's, this is the first miracle; it's the wedding at Cana. It's it's quite a bit more than that if you pay attention. After Jesus has gathered at least some disciples. Uh, some of which seem to be part of his family, some of which, you know, are, are people that he's met, maybe some that he's grown up with and known. They're all invited to a wedding where he performs his first miracle, and that is turning water into wine, and it includes, I think, some features that hint at this transition between old and new, and that it has officially begun. And you've got to pay attention to see it, but I think there's some interesting features about it. Let's look at it. So I want to read this passage first. Let me go back, because I don't want you to get the answer ahead of time. All right. Um, Let's look at John chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also uh, also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman... What does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells (laughs) you. That's how a mom gives orders to her son. (laughs) Uh, I love this story so much. Now, (laughs) Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. So, uh, now we have to remember that in a, at a wedding celebration, uh, they could last as long as a week, um, so you can imagine uh, of that kind of financial toll. <laughs> and all of that financial responsibility lay with the bridegroom and with uh, his family. Um, now, to run out of supplies is an embarrassment, one, because you were not prepared two because it's a kind of a money thing right like it's it's a sort of you don't have the money to actually provide for this new wife that you're taking in at your wedding and so there is quite a bit of shame that's being brought uh to this and obviously mary has some responsibility here for this wedding we don't know what that is but it's probably a family affair and that's why jesus and some of his disciples are probably also invited because they know each other they grow up in the same area. Um, and they're, you know, they're all there. So, and Mary has some sort of responsibility for the wine running out, and she wants to be sure that this is taken care of. So I want you to pay attention, though, of a couple of things that are there in the text that you would otherwise just gloss over. First of all, this miracle in the story occurs on the seventh day that the narrative begins. Okay. So in, well, I won't go through all the verses. You can go through them later. In verse... 28, you have the first day. That's implied that it is a day because then verse 29 says, on the next day, right? So that's two days. So 28, 29, 35 is day three, 43 is day four, and in 2, 1 it says three days later. So we're now looking at the seventh day. Now, ordinarily, I would say coincidence or just minor detail, things that you... Yeah, it's probably meaningless, right? However, one, it's the Gospel of John, and seven is really important in the Gospel of John. So, full stop there. Two, it's the Bible, and nothing's an accident. All right? So, I'll just say that. Uh, um, and, and third, in the Gospel of John, days... Things that are mentioned in relation to holidays and festivities are really important. So when he says three days later, I don't think he's just throwing in a detail that's just casual. I think he means to actually say something. So a, sa- a full Sabbath week later, essentially we're, we're sitting on the Sabbath day. Not necessarily that it's on the Sabbath day, but that it's seven, on the seventh day later. Jesus does this miraculous work. The fourth reason why I think that's important is because Jesus working on the 7th day is a theme running through John. If you know anything about Jesus, he tends to stir up controversy on the Sabbath. Have you notice this? He tends to do miracles. He probably could wait. I imagine he could. I imagine Jesus could probably just say, tomorrow you'll be healed, and walk off, and the next day the guy would just be able to walk up off his mat. I'm sure he could do that. He opts almost never to do that, right? He nearly always takes the opportunity on the Sabbath to do something. So here we have this transition that's been building between John and Jesus. John handing off the torch to Jesus. We're seeing Jesus take up the mantle of the new kingdom, and here on the seventh day, Jesus performs this first miracle. Now couple that with the fact that the abundance of good wine and a wedding feast are both signs of the inauguration of the age of the Messiah. So you have places like Jeremiah 31:12, Jose, I'll let you read these later, Hosea 14:7, Amos 9:13 and 14. I'll read that one. It says, "Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord when the ploughman shall overtake the reaper, and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed, the mountain shall drip sweet wine, that's good wine, and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine, and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. But it's not just that, it's also the wedding feast which we have replete through the Gospels of Matthew and Revelation is this combination of a wedding feast and the, the inauguration of the, of the kingdom come to the full where the people are able to drink good wine. In this miracle, you have Jesus filling six stone mason jars of a, somewhere between 100 to 150 gallons in total of wine. I don't know if you've been to these ancient cities. They're small. This is not Birmingham that they're in having this wedding where the whole city's there. Capernaum is, you could throw a tennis ball across the whole city, practically. It's small, right? And Cana and all the others are similar, similar in size. They're, they're small towns. You've got hundred and fifty gal- as much as 150 gallons of wine there at a wedding? He has them fill it to the brim, but there's one more thing that's of interest that John does not just casually throw in there. It's the purpose that these jars are made for. What are they made for? Ceremonial washing, which is an Old Testament rite. So they fill the jars of water, uh, the jars of filled with Old Testament water. In goes the old covenant. And what comes out? The new kingdom. In goes the rites of ceremonial washing, your dishes and your hands and your all kinds of things before you eat as was important in the old covenant and out comes the new covenant in the blood of Christ. Out comes the celebration of Christ's kingdom at the wedding feast. This is not just any miracle. This is also a foreshadowing. This is a foreshadowing of the kind of kingdom Jesus is actually bringing. One of celebration and of joy and of happiness, where the embarrassment and the shame is taken away, and what's given to the people is celebration and joy and happiness. The purpose of this story is to symbolize the inauguration of a new day. The old order of Jewish law and custom was now to be replaced by Jesus bringing the new and better age of the Messiah. Questions? One can never look in the mouth of a cook. Of a cook. Okay. <laughs> gotcha. I was I, I I the meaning of the proverb was not readily apparent to me. <laughs> I got you now, okay, got it. All right. Yeah, yeah, good word. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're grateful for your word. We're grateful for uh, all the many complexities within it. And as much as it is put to scrutiny by people who are students of your word and who love you, and by pagans alike, we see that it it withstands all the scrutiny the world has been able to throw at it for 2,000 years Um, So we are grateful for the word that we have here and for what it testifies to and that we can, um, that it is, as it were, a stream of water where the sheep can drink in the shallow end and the elephant can float at large. We are grateful for that and that we can endeavor to study it for the rest of our lives and never plumb the depth of it. We we are grateful for that. So as we give ourselves to it, would you reveal more of yourself to us, that we might come to celebrate um, with all of your disciples around the world, um, those that have gone before us, and those that are still now, and those that are yet to come, that we might be able to celebrate in your kingdom uh, one day. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you live in the Tuscaloosa area and are looking for a church, we'd love for you to visit. Our service times are Sunday mornings at 10.30 and Wednesday nights at 6.15.